What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Josh Marshall podcast. As we mentioned in last week's episode, this is a pre-recorded episode, kind of a new a, a new thing for us. Uh, our co-host, my co-host, Kate Riga, is uh, on vacation. Um, so last week's episode is the uh, last, you know, not we don't do them live, but you know, kind of where we're do, we're recording them on the same day they are released. So we're talking about the news of the day. Uh, we thought we would do one evergreen episode for you, um, one that is not tightly focused on the news of the day, but on some you know kind of major uh, major question that comes up again and again in the uh, political news. So we're going to do that today. And as I said, uh, Kate is uh, on a uh, away for two weeks on vacations, so probably as I as you li- we are we are broadcasting to you from the past. <laughs> so as 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 you listen, Kate is, you know, she's probably on an icebreaker in the Arctic, right in her in her adventure vacation. Uh, but in any case, um, what we're going to talk about today is something that it's been in the news recently, but the sort of the broader issue that informs it is has kind of interwoven itself into uh, political news just a huge amount over the last couple years especially but really going back 10 15 years and and that is what we're going to what we're going to sort of open this with is you know that uh I don't know a few weeks ago god it's probably more, more than a few weeks ago now you had these uh, they they attempted to expel three members of the Tennessee State House. They did actually expel uh, two members, two young African American men. Uh, I believe it was one from Memphis, one from uh, Nashville. So we know about that. And now both of them, I guess, are now back in the state legislature because they were uh, initially reappointed by, like you know, the county council or something like that in 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 their district. And I think. Um, they're now starting, you know, there's now campaigns now for, uh, to, to, you know, to, to formally reelect them. So, th- so there's that. You may have also seen uh, just the last couple weeks there, uh, the Montana State House expelled a trans woman named Zoe Zephyr. Uh, or I, I guess they didn't expel her. What did they, they basically, she could no longer have speaking privileges, basically. So, okay, so it's not an expulsion, but kind of right if you take away one member's right to 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 rise to speak and this was because she had they were debating a a uh, a, a bill about 
trans rights. And she basically said, you know, this body's going to have blood on its hands, citing the evidence that uh, teens who, um, uh, trans teens who are not able to get uh, therapeutic support, um, whether that, you know, the, the range of that are have higher rates of suicide. So that that was the that was the uh, trigger of it. But they did this there, and and together these are it's part of this trend we have seen in you know highly gerrymandered, very Republican dominated uh, state houses and you know state senates too. To basically just say, if you minority, and in this case, I mean numerical minority uh, Democrats, if you guys don't get along with us, we'll just kick you out or take away your right to to, to talk. Um, and there are other things. This is this topic goes out in so many directions. Obviously, for you to be able to do that, you need to have you you basically have to have a supermajority in that body. Because in very few, I don't know the rules in every single state, but in almost every state, you need a supermajority to do that, to boot someone out, to do these kind of draconian uh, uh, punishments that uh, Zoe Zephyr had in Montana. But this gets back to another issue that we have talked about a lot, and that is extreme gerrymandering. Now, extreme gerrymandering is something that is almost always easier to do if your base of support is in the exurbs and rural areas. And there's we've talked about this before. There's just, you know, you don't have the urban concentration of liberal voters and stuff like that. But we've talked a lot about um, over the course of this podcast, the fact that the Wisconsin state legislature is so heavily gerrymandered that when there is every two years, when there's an election in the state, there's there's really no question that Democrats will control either house of the state legislature. The question is is only whether Republicans will control it by a majority or a supermajority. And you know, Wisconsin is not it's not Idaho, it's not Alabama. When you have statewide races in Wisconsin, it's basically a 50-50 proposition. Governor Evers just was reelected in in uh, 2022, and uh, then unfortunately, Ron Johnson won reelection to the Senate by one point. But the, you know, we know this when there are every election, well, except for this this recent judge election, Supreme Court judge election. Basically, every governor or Senate candidate campaign in Wisconsin is a 50-50 proposition. Sometimes it's literally 50-50, and there's a few votes separating them, 51, 52. It's a swing state. It's a definitional swing state. It's always super close. So if Republicans always or almost always have super majorities in the legislature, there's some disconnect there. Something's wrong. Something is something is not uh, getting through. And we've seen that. You know, We saw that in a lot of upper Midwestern states. We saw it in Pennsylvania. We saw it in Michigan. Now, in those cases, there's actually been there's actually been some change. You know, uh, Democrats have, uh, you know, basically have the trifecta now in Michigan. But these things are based on supermajorities and the willingness of these majorities to use that power, uh, which in a state like Tennessee, 
they come by to an extent reasonably. I mean, it's a conservative state. You're not, you know, in in this day and age, probably not going to have Democrats uh, controlling one of the one of the state houses in Tennessee. But the super majorities and the super supers super majorities that comes when you when you when you layer in gerrymandering. And the unfortunate thing is that these things become self perpetuating. You know, you have your super majority. You write the districts to protect yourself even more, and there's kind of no way to get past it. And you know, we've seen other examples. We've seen there's been a number of number of states where um, they've passed laws that if the governor thinks a local district attorney is being too liberal, he can just boot him or take over a case or something like that. And uh, I know there was one, I, we're going to talk about this with Kate in a moment, uh, you know, county in Texas where it's getting too democratic. So they just make a rule kind of like, well, we can overrule their, their votes. So this pattern of Republicans basically entrenching their political power, usually through gerrymandering, uh, and then using it to make their power seemingly self-perpetuating and to go in and not even allow the minority power to be the minority or to allow the uh, governor or the state legislature to reach down and just, you know, you got a local Democrat? Well, until we think you're taking it a little too far, then we go in and take over. So that's what we're going to We're going to talk about this uh, meta question today. And my co-host, Kate, who's, you know, uh, out in the Arctic and all that, um, she she's actually a number of stories that she has been covering recently tie into this in different in different ways. So, Kate, uh, what is where where should we start on this topic? Where, where there's so many different parts of it. Uh, it, it's, it is hard to know where to start, but where should we dive in? Well, I guess to start, um, listeners, I'm really not that adventurous. I'm, I'm just in Western Europe, but, um, I didn't want to out you. I was trying to keep it on the down <laughs> You're low. You're making me sound a lot cooler than I am. Yeah. Well, I was trying um, to. so I think the piece that has intersected my reporting most are these Republican attempts to raise the ballot threshold to pass a, a voter initiated, you know, citizen initiated measures, which we have now many years of evidence that this often serves for voters in red states to pass, you know, what you'd consider progressive uh, policies. And in all these states, these moves to make that harder, you know, aligns really neatly um, with both kind of the past and the future. Um, like in Ohio, they're making a really big um, push to get abortion rights enshrined in the state constitution, which is, you know, we've seen this happening in some other states. And, you know, not coincidentally, there's now going to be an August special election to raise the threshold from a simple majority to 60% um, to pass citizen-initiated ballot measures before November, which is when the abortion one will come before the voters. And then, you know, we have in Missouri, there are similar efforts. And also in Missouri of late, voters legalized marijuana, overturned a right to work law and expanded Medicaid. So now they're doing either you need 57% of the vote or this like electoral college setup, basically, where you need like 
a majority of votes from different from a certain number of districts, basically all to kind of dilute the power of the, you know, the cities where all of the Democrats in Missouri basically are. Um, and then you have a slightly different version in Florida, who we, you know, we covered at length at TPM, you know, they had uh restored voting rights to people who served out felony sentences, even though the legislature then did everything to make that uh, not binding. But they also, you know, they raised the minimum wage, banned offshore drilling, also legalized marijuana. And so now in Florida, this effort kind of like petered out before the end of this uh, session, but they were pushing an effort to raise the ballot threshold from 60% to 66.67. You know, so I mean, we're getting to ridiculous farcical points where it's going to be like, oh, no, you need 100% support to pass anything. Now, in Ohio, where you're having the special election to change the percentage that is required, what is the percentage required for that special election? I assume it must still be 50 because they haven't passed the thing yet. Exactly. So simple majority to raise the threshold from a simple majority to 60%. So I guess what they must be you know, let, let's say hypothetically that 60% of Ohio residents want to enshrine abortion rights into the state constitution. I mean, that's that's not a fact in evidence, but just, just as a hypothetical. So I assume then they're assuming that those people won't be focusing on the fact that they'll be taking away their right to later make that law a few months later. Like you're not connecting the dots. Exactly. Basically. And then or I guess you also know, lower, lower, lower turnout election. Right. right. Exactly. That's, that's I mean, this, thing. this one also kind of combines the older types of Republican attempts to, you know, only need minority buy in to kind of hold control, which is usually boring administrative stuff like scheduling your special election for August when there's nothing else going on. And they know that traditionally, you know, that this hasn't been true in some recent really important cycles, but traditionally those off-cycle random uh, elections only brought out the kind of like super voters, which tended to be, you know, old people who skew conservative, who vote every time. Whereas right. a lot of the contingents that Democrats depend on, you know, like young people, um, you know, people who tend to have hourly jobs, that kind of stuff, they don't tend to come out in off cycle. And again, this hasn't been true as much of late, but it is that dynamic that oh, people always use in bad faith, where it's like if people overcome the voter suppression, the voter suppression must not be so bad. Um and in recent cycles, I think people have overcome the voter suppression just because you've got attention and money stemming from Dobbs in particular. So you've got organizations doing kind of yeoman's work to remind people you've got to vote on this ballot initiative. You've got to vote in the boring municipal election. You've got to vote in this like off-timed weird election that Republicans are doing everything possible to make it difficult. Um, right. So. so- oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. So you have this like the ballot stuff, the stifling of dissent of the lawmakers themselves. And, you know, the lawmaker ones in particular, I think are drawing so much attention because it's so just flagrantly anti-democratic that you don't like what these people are saying. So rather than just kind of like ignoring it or even slapping them on the wrist, I mean, in the Tennessee case in particular, you're just undoing an election. Like you're booting out a person that voters elected. But I think, you know, and part of the reason we wanted to talk about this is it's so of a piece with what the Republican Party and specifically the state level Republican Party, how they've been operating for really, I guess, the past like 13 years now, that this is almost the natural 
outgrowth when you've got a dynamic that a lot of these state houses are so gerrymandered that their only political threat is the person who's even crazier and even harder to the right. So you genuinely, I think, now have bodies where it's like, who's to say the the difference? But you've got either people who know their political interests are going to be as being as right wing as possible. And then you've genuinely got people who are just nuts. You know, I don't know if you saw, I don't even remember what state, but the lawmaker who was saying she would rather her daughter commit suicide than than receive care for being trans. Oh, right, right. Yeah, no, I <laughs> I don't remember the specifics. But yeah, I do. I do. I do remember. I mean, that's, that's quite disturbing. Yeah, I mean, quite disturbing. And I don't care what state in the union you're in, you know, even the ones that tend to harbor the most kind of homophobic views, there's just no way you would ever have a majority of voters say, yeah, I'd rather my kid kill themselves than, you know, come out in a different sexual orientation. And it's just it's proof of how anti-democratic these state houses have become. And it just, it all stems from the same stuff, right? You had 2008 election, Obama's elected, huge deal, huge backlash. And you've got Republicans kind of out in the wilderness being like, well, what now? And really faced with the idea that their constituency is shrinking and is not big enough to kind of overcome these new, you know, Obama era coalitions. And so you've got the pouring of right-wing attention to the state level, which is helped by Citizens United. So the money can just like flood in with all these right-wing interests helping them take over the state houses. And then you have 2010 being a wave year for Republicans, which in retrospect is like the worst thing to happen to democracy in the last decade, because that just flooded the state houses right during a redistricting cycle. And so now we've got all, like you say, we've got Wisconsin, we've got these states that aren't even particularly red, that are locked in to Republican dominance. And, you know, we just had the past redistricting cycle. And who's controlling that? It's the Republicans who entrenched their power back in 2010. And all of this stuff builds on each other and is just worrying even more now that the Supreme Court is so right wing, right? So you can't even kind of count on challenges at any point getting up there. And when you have cases like in uh, Ohio that still has a reasonable Supreme Court. I mean, we just saw this with their attempts to gerrymander that they just ignored the Supreme Court. You know, they just went about their business. And, it, you know, with additional threats like the independent state legislature theory kind of looming and threatening to give these people even more power. It's just, you know, the we're seeing it throughout the Republican Party, this rightward march into authoritarianism. But, you know, the kind of like cauldrons of this is all happening on the state level. You know, one thing that's interesting is that we are familiar with the the right being very focused on federalism, uh, you know, send the back, send the power back to the states, uh, state rights, which obviously has its own, you know, highly charged history behind it. Um, but if you set that aside, I think a lot of people, you know, sort of across the political spectrum, intuitively kind of think, well, get, you know, get it close to the individual communities and, you know, kind of local town halls and all that kind of stuff. And uh, 2010 was bad timing or something like that. But, you know, why can't states be, you know, laboratories of democracy where you try out progressive legislation? And certainly there is, um, there are, you uh, there are some examples of this that uh, states often, but not always through judicial decisions, uh, led the way on um, marriage equality. And what we now know as Obamacare, ironically, 
was initially put into law by Mitt Romney in Massachusetts. But what's interesting is if you go back to um, the origins of the modern, I don't say progressive has a lot of different meanings over time, but the modern and by modern, I would say, you know, very end of the 19th century until now, uh, progressive, liberal, you know, what we now think of as democratic, you know, kind of political reformism. One of the basic thoughts that those people had was that the states are inherently reactionary, that progressive action is really only possible at the federal level. So when you had the kind of reformism that you had in the capital P progressive movement and then during the New Deal and and the way that both of those movements kind of flowed into each other and then kind of went forward into where we are today, again, there was this basic sense that the federal government is inherently the friend of progressive reformism, uh, or at least not the enemy of it, and that state governments are kind of inherently the enemy of it, that they are inherently, uh, both inherently and historically reactionary. And it's good to remember that because those were not bad arguments. And I think we're seeing examples of that. And one of the arguments was that um, state governments are, they, they are just more exposed to the power of money the power i mean and and again this 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 is something that gets that gets back into the social roots of political power that not just money but social and economic power right if you're in like it's a little different in a city like new york city which is almost like a small country right size wise um but in your average city government well yeah there's elections but i think many of us especially as you get older and you know, maybe become a householder and stuff, you know, own a home and stuff like that. In the city context, it's the, it's the powers that be, which call a lot of the shots The just, just sort of like, you know, political connections, money connections, the male social clubs, you know, Kiwanises and stuff like this. So in any case, I, I can't get into the whole argument, but this was one of the big arguments of, of the progressives that the state governments are always going to lean towards um, social, economic, social and economic power, the sort of the, the establishments in the towns, in the counties, and so on and so forth. And to some extent, I think we are seeing that. Um, and, you know, one, one, one kind of modern permutation of that is, and, and we talk about it, well, you know, Democrats can't focus and stuff like that. But we, we focus on national stuff. We focus on Congress. We focus on the presidency. But it's hard to keep up on like the, the, the local state house and who runs it and who the power brokers are and stuff like that. And if you, you know, state governments are small. Not as many people are watching. Money talks a lot louder at, at, this, at, at, the, um, at the state level. And to a great extent, you know, are you a you know, young person in your first and second job in your, in your twenties, looking, looking to get married, you're really focused on like who the power brokers are in the state government. Probably not. The people who are, are the people who got serious business interests in front of the state government. So it's, it's, it's interesting that this is, that this is not without a lot of, um, historical, uh, 
historical parallels and at least the 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 strong assumptions of the of the people who were doing this kind of stuff a hundred and a little more than a hundred years ago, thinking that mass action really only can have its big effect at the national level. So you want you you want the the national Latin national governments where you where you where you want to have your power, and obviously states' rights has all of its kind of civil war era baggage to it. But even if you set that aside, um, there's a strong there is a strong current in progressive reformism that states' rights is always bad because it's the federal government that can really has any shot at vindicating the rights of you know as much as it's a cliche ordinary people. Um, so that's 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 also worth you know kind of putting into the mix as as we think about this. Yeah, and the point you make about money kind of flowing so uninhibited into state governments and people not paying attention. I mean, a a huge part of that has to also be the hollowing out of the local news apparatus because you just don't have as many places that are covering state houses at this point. And, you know, there's still kind of a few unusual spots that still have like quite strong presences, but you also kind of see the result of that, you know, like Columbus is one of those that's still served by kind of multiple um, outlets. And there's like some astronomic number of the past kind of leaders in the state house who have been indicted on various kind of uh, money related charges. Like you have a householder who's going to trial for racketeering soon, who was the house speaker. Um, You know, that also does play in. And I do, I feel like we have these conversations kind of, you know, when George Santos arose, it was like, well, what's going on? And, and we talked about it on the show, how it's not like New York in particular is uh, a desert, a news desert, like wide swaths of the country are. But then, you know, just kind of folded into all the conversation that's been having about media startups and blah, blah, blah. It's like, all of these things are just tend to be the same thing, right? That's like, we're making a new outlet. It's going to be nonpartisan. You know, we're going to call it like we see it, a a new outlet for people who are sick of the bullshit. And then of course, you know, what's behind it? It's like VC, it's going to depend on uh, digital advertising. And then, you know, these places fold and like inevitably, you know, at some point after often kind of like poaching good reporters, out from elsewhere, but they're all like driving to do the same thing. They want to cover national politics, right? Or they want to add another kind of like tip sheet for the the paying attention people in the, on the Beltway and in New York and whatever. But I th- I guess it's just like less money to be had on the local level, and you know, local politics is always kind of I think unsexy next to the the big shot stuff of national politics. But in that realm, they're really is not a ton of work being done to kind of remedy that problem. It's just something that people tend to like lament every once in a while and then just like move on. Yeah. And, you know, I think another another way to look at this is that in many ways, the country became increasingly nationalized, its political culture. Um, you know, you see it even in, in basic things like language. Uh, radio and then especially television has put you know huge amounts of pressure on regional dialects right people from the south don't talk as southern as they used to and people from new england don't talk as in as much of a yankee accent because we have a standard you know a standard national dialect and the fact that you hear it again and again and on tv it kind of shapes how you speak and blah 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 so 
we have all of these trends that has made the country more nationally focused, but you still have states that exercise massive amounts of power, state governments. And so that's another part of it that you kind of, you know, you're focused on it's a it's a national culture, it's a national political culture. Um, and so you're focused on the national government. So there's these reasons why you don't um, why you don't focus or don't naturally focus um, on the state governments, you know, on on the on the issue of where is the money from? This is something, you know, we used to have uh, at TPM, we used to have a, have a very different business model to the subscription orientation we have now. We were basically 100% advertising. Um, and so I had to familiarize myself uh, with that market and that economy. I mean, that that's what I did for like 15 years. It's just, I was, you know, in many ways, it's at least as much involved in, in the business side of what we do as the editorial side. And if you, if you, none of these high, highly, um, you know, well-funded startups or things that are not even startups anymore, Punchbowl, Politico, Axios, all these, you know, all these different kinds of things that have the kind of these newsletters and all this kind of stuff. None of them make much of their money from presenting news to ordinary or semi-ordinary people. That's like a loss leader, basically. The way those universally, the way there's two ways that 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 those outfits uh, make money. One is advertising to basically to the people who actually exercise power in DC, right? Advertising to them, because that is basically a subset of lobbying, right? You're putting your message in the front of the person who is either going to vote on the bill or is going to affect the people who are going to vote on the bill, whether they're staffers, whether they're um, people in the think tanks, people in the relevant agencies, stuff like that. So to the extent that they are involved in advertising, it is heavily a certain kind of advertising that is, in essence, a subset of the lobbying budget. And then the other thing is they want to convene people in events. Now, what events here means is we are going to have a one of our reporters talking to the undersecretary of the Department of Labor. And uh, we are going to get a lot of members of Congress in the audience and staffers and other journalists and stuff, you know, stakeholders in the national political process in Washington, D.C. We're going to get a lot of those people in the audience. And you... General Motors, General Electric, Google, Facebook, whatever, you're going to be the sponsor. And we're going to get your messaging into the event. Now, I don't mean necessarily in a corrupt way, although there's a lot of that. But, you know, you're someone from, some, someone from your company will, will get up and say a few remarks as, you know, we're going to thank our sponsor. You're going to have, uh, you know, signage and stuff like that. And the reason I, I so, so, both of those things, that's how they make their money. You out in Georgia, who are just really into politics, you're irrelevant, except in this sense that their ability to get the big people in the, in the, in the audience is based on, well, you're Politico or you're Axios. You're kind of a very, everybody's heard of you. 
your people show up on TV, right? I digress in this way to make the point, can you copy that model on the state level or on the local level? Of course not. Of course not, right? <laughs> the, 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 these big prestige sponsors, they need attention in the national legislative process, right? That's why they're lobbying there. Yeah, they lobby at the state level too, but that's why they're, that's why they're lobbying there. So it helps one to understand, wow, we have, it's so hard to do local news. Why is it that every five minutes there's a new company basically going to do the new, new thing in Washington, D.C.? Why, why is all the money there? And it's easy to think, well, just more people are interested at the, at the federal level. And well, not really. That, that's true. And that plays into it. But that is where the money is. It's that specific thing. You as a viewer out in Georgia, you're relevant, except they also have a business kind of, there's some targeting of because, you know, something uh, in Georgia, but are you a political influencer, right? So a lot of it, th that is the reason. That's why there's no, that's why there's no money for that kind of news, because there's also no money for that kind of news at the federal level or even in Washington, DC. Again, it's the, it's the targeted to Capitol Hill ads and to some extent, the targeted to Washington, D.C. And I know this because we used to do this, right? That is the, that is the argument. And it's also, it also helps you understand why the whole kind of both sides thing. Because what the advertisers know, they, they need to know, you're, you're kind of, you're not, you're, not, you're not tied to the right or the left, are you? Because that's, that's, that's a little hot for us. But we want, we want someone who's, you know, kind of middle of the road, kind of is everybody, you know, everybody, everybody watches. No one thinks you're too tied to one side or the other. No one's going to get mad. And we're going to advertise because we need those people who are calling the shots in D.C. to hear our message because we got a lot of money on the line with the legislation. That's why. There's no money because again, there's no money for it in DC either. There's just a different there in, in just regular news. You need these other things and those other things don't exist at the local level. You know, and I guess my concern is obviously the hollowing out of local news is really bad, but it almost feels like even if it wasn't, would it have a huge effect given the way that Republicans on the state level have manufactured their dominance, you know, I mean, I'm sure it would in the extreme cases, right? Like every once in a while, you know, in Alabama, you have Doug Jones win, right? Every once in a while, someone messes up so badly that even their kind of hardcore constituents, you know, sit it out or, or vote for someone else. But when you've got you know, we were kind of looking at the Texas redistricting cycle in 2020, right? And I was talking to all these experts and they were like, yeah, there probably won't be that much redistricting this cycle because they redistricted so much 10 years ago that there's just not that much stuff maxed to do. Out. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so when you've got all your people in like R plus 20 districts and then you've got your two Democrats in R plus or D plus 50 because they're in the, the city centers. Right, It's right, just, right. you know, what they have no electoral incentive to you know, be ethically upstanding to be uh, to do anything other than like, that's why we're getting this like culture war red meat just like to coming out of these state houses left, right, right and sideways. And not least because 
there's nothing else policy wise that they can really do because their policy stuff is so unpopular that they just need to find a way to kind of like appeal to the wealthy people who are giving them the money, you know, and that's usually by tax cuts or, or no regulation, that kind of stuff. And then just kind of like churning out this like anger bait for the normies to like keep mm -hmm. them engaged and supporting them, um, you know, and then it's just a, a race to the right, essentially. Well, you know, mo I think it it is worth noting they had in Michigan, they had something like what they have in Wisconsin. Not quite, a, not, mm -hmm. not as extreme, not as durable. Um, but Gretchen Whitmer, and it really is kind of Gretchen Whitmer and the, and the, the, the movement that she has kind of coalesced behind her, um, which has put abortion rights really at the center, um, but it's not only abortion rights, and they but and they did overcome that. And I think I think the way to look at this is that you know in Tennessee, like let's say you had a total good government, you know. Um, softies go in there and 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 you know just redistrict it so it, it, you know in optimal fairness republicans would almost certainly still have a majority mm -hmm. right in 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 the legislature so that what you need is in like let's let's say wisconsin you know they gerrymandered their state houses the state houses gerrymander it next time so how is it gonna how is it gonna undo now this is one of the reasons as you know why they were so why everybody was so focused on that supreme court mm -hmm. election a month or six weeks ago or whenever that was because uh for listeners that means that there's basically a democratic majority on the state supreme court and it is pretty straightforward to say wow guys this this gerrymandering is way too much and it's 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 kind of pretty clear that democrats were able to win that to a significant extent on the abortion issue but i think if you look at it the republicans in the state legislature are willing to say okay whatever we lost on abortion like who cares but like if you come for our seats we will impeach you we will remove you from office and then you get then it then potentially really becomes self-perpetuating because you you the voters put in a supreme court but the state legislature just removes that person by you know by impeaching and 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 removing them from office so i think the way to the way to look at it is that none of these structures that have have been built in really any states are going to be able to survive 60 40 opposition from the voters Maybe not even 55-45 opposition from the voters, but 55% opposition in, our, in today's polarized political landscape, that's a pretty big deal. So the point is, is that <laughs> you can ride the difference between 50-50 and 60-40 for a long time, right? And Wisconsin, again, is our is our perfect instructive example, because basically it's a 50 50 state. And as long as you're as long as people are turning out basically 50 50, 52, 48, whatever, you're never going to overcome that gerrymandering. So it's not that, you know, democracy is dead, that there's no way that these constructs can be disassembled, but you really do need kind of mass opposition. And in this day and age, that's that's really, really hard to come up with. And, and you know, they kind of did it in Michigan because in, in large part because the abortion issue was such a driving issue. Um, but it's really hard and you can and you can basically build a moat around a legislature that's going to survive 
almost, you know, almost anything. Yeah. I mean, on the the positive end of that is, as you say, the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, right? And then they have floated impeachment concerns. But in that state in particular, if they did impeach her, um, the governor would pick her replacement, who is a Democrat. So, you know, just to allay some of the more uh, knee-jerk panic among our listeners. But I think you know, this is also depressing and negative and kind of explains a lot of the extremism of the Republican Party. And I do think it's important to think about the structural stuff that underlies this, because it's always the boring administrative stuff, which is where people make the inroads, like where they amass power. It's not the flashy stuff that everyone hears about. Um, But I do think there has been a shift on the left to start paying attention to the state level stuff, which was really absent before. I mean, the Wisconsin Supreme Court race is a good example. These various kind of ballot initiatives that are premised on abortion are good examples. We've seen turnout like we've never seen before uh, to vote for those things. And it's not It is really no small thing for even a state with a legislature that is gerrymandered to death to win in those states, Supreme Court seats and governorships like those are really, really important things. And I do think those things can unwind some of the damage that's being done at the legislative level. And it's not perfect. I mean, like you say, they are already making noises about coming after uh, Janet Protasewicz because she kind of ran in part on saying, you send me a redistricting challenge, I'm going to unwind some of this. Right, right. They always do that, right? That's the Republican constant thing is like, you do something I don't like, I'm going to come after you. And at some point you got to be like, okay, you know what? Come after us. But and then I'll come back after you. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. You can't, I mean, that that's sort of to get into something else. That's what I'm sort of afraid the White House is giving into now. Kind of, you know, oh, we can't do that because X, Y. I mean, you have to, it, it's, uh, you know, Napoleon had a had a, a quote that was something like this and, and it, you know, attack, attack, attack. You have to always be acting and never like, oh, if I act and they'll, act. I mean, you just, you don't, you know, you just, that, that is being, that is, that is just what that describes is just being tamed, basically. I will say another, another point of it's, it's, it's kind of an optimistic point, but I think it's, a, it's, it is at least a, an instructive point. And so much of our current politics right now, and I think it is what, in many cases, it is the reason that that formerly grown-up Republican you know, your cousin, your uncle, your business associate, suddenly in the last few years you found them saying, "Yeah, I'm into Trump," and you're like, "Wait, what do you? What do you? How did that happen? What? What is? You know, what happened there?" And usually the thinking is something like this: that my my set of values, my thing, is under attack. And it seems like my side is getting weaker and we're getting like overrun. Now, you can have all sorts of like great rep- yeah, great replacement theory, kind of like racist we're being overrun. But maybe we're just being overrun by the young people who are into this trans stuff and, and suddenly they think unions are good and, and, and all the stuff, right? This sense that like time is not on our side. We're losing. And when you feel that way, you become a lot more amenable to maybe just throw a wrench into the machine. Maybe just start breaking things. Because if I can't ever, if, 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 
if I and my values can't ever be ascendant again, maybe just fuck it. Or at least we'll buy some time by just breaking things. Um, and that that is, in a lot of ways, that that's Trumpism. And something that I saw, you know, when that thing happened in Tennessee and those two guys, uh, I think it was Justin James, Justin Justin Pearson, it was Justin Jones or Justin James? Justin Jones. Jones, yeah, that's Jones, right. Jones, okay. Two young African-American guys expelled. Now, what I saw when I looked into that is, I believe it was Jones, and he is the one who was elected from Nashville, and that's the state capital, right? So he's been an activist in the state capital for a while. And what got them booted was, you know, chanting with the demonstrators for a while that one day on the House floor. But when I looked at it, he had been involved in a series of protests centering around the state capitol going back like seven or eight years till he was, I think, maybe when he was a college student. But in any case, they, those guys, you know, white guys who run that legislature had been tangling with him for years. And he's an outsider and he's there doing sit-ins and running protests. And there was one thing a few years ago where they said, I don't know, said he like tossed a drink at someone or, and they, then he was arrested for like assault and then it was thrown out. And uh, Pearson is from Memphis. So different city, but involved in, you know, his other activism in Memphis and, 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 and stuff like that. But when I saw it in that light, you could sort of, they've known him, especially Jones, as an outsider for years. And he's been in their face for years. And so there's a whole thing. There's a whole backstory in this, in this contention. And suddenly he's in the legislature. And I'm sure they're thinking, what the fuck? That kind of that kid who's constantly running, you know, uh, running protests in our body. Now he's here, and so, and and yes, is there a big racial overlay to that? Absolutely, absolutely. There's also a generational one, right? Playing by a different set of rules with this kind of you know mass protests and stuff. I mean, I, they did a they had. I believe there's an earlier one they did about gun violence. There was a very big one tied to uh, George Floyd. And I think what you see there is it is both racial and generational. And Jones, I think in particular, um, sort of embodies that sense of even in Tennessee, kind of like there's more and more of these people. And I don't just mean people of color in this case, young people who seem to think differently and they're centered in the cities and we got to we got to restrict the power in the cities because again there's more and more and and again that's trumpism at the national level i think you see that playing out at the state level and to the extent you know if you are i think back to the reagan years in the reagan years republicans very confidently had this thought we win every election we are the future and there's no reason to be anti-democratic or kind of all these things we're talking about if you're the future and you always win. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of these things are based on we need to kind of lock down our power because I'm not sure we're going to be able to win it again in the future. And I do think we can take some hint of optimism from 
maybe they're right. Maybe a lot of this is based on a profound lack of confidence in their ability to remain politically ascendant into the future. So you start having to try to lock things into place because the idea you're going to keep winning elections seems very doubtful. So again, that doesn't, um, that doesn't cha- it certainly doesn't change the scenario a lot in like Tennessee, which is already a pretty conservative state. You know, th- they, all the things there, it doesn't immediately change the equation in Wisconsin. But young people in this country think very differently politically. We're seeing that play out. I mean, look at Georgia. It took like three election cycles from Georgia to go from, you know, it definitely had some purple like tinges, but a red state to having two Democratic governor or senators from Georgia. I mean, it's not it really is only a few years ago that that even started to seem possible at all. And the biggest thing that breaks the reliability of gerrymanders, all these experts told me, is particularly fast demographic change in these states that you can craft a gerrymander that puts you in enormous power, but it is very hard to guess exactly what your state is going to look like 10 years later. And in a lot of cases, that would be, you know, kind of more left-leaning people starting to come from the cities and occupy the surrounding suburbs. And we're seeing that dynamic all over the country where, you know, the rings around the metro areas are getting bigger and bigger. The blue is kind of like seeping out from those spots and isn't staying so totally concentrated just in kind of the big metro centers. Um, And that's happening in Georgia. That's happening in Texas. I mean, that's happening in not every Republican stronghold. I mean, a lot of these red states are just bleeding young people who don't want to live there and don't want to live under these repressive regimes. But a lot of them, there is growth. There are young people coming to the cities who settle in the states, who change its political dynamic. And that's just something we've seen again and again. So, you know, as it can just seem so depressing. And so like these people have a vice-like grip on their power and it's hard to see how you break that. But These are oftentimes not masterminds behind this to begin with. And it's just hard to game this stuff out to begin with. Um, So, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is is correct. I mean, this is all born from a fear that the Republican Party does simply not appeal to the majority of voters. And so they have to take other means to hold on to power. And that is a you know, depressing for those of us who are democratically minded, who would like them to maybe just try to expand their tent of ideas to appeal to more people. But that those days are gone, right? We do not any longer have anyone like, you know, Paul Ryan trying to do an autopsy about, you know, why Republicans aren't appealing to Latino people like that. We don't live in that world anymore. But it's hard to game this stuff out to put yourself in power permanently. And there is stuff you're not going to see coming like the backlash to Dobbs, you know, like young people staying more politically activated than previous generations have been. Then then the response to Trumpism um, and, and a pandemic and all this other stuff that we haven't seen coming. So I think the left is paying more attention to state level stuff. There have been really encouraging signs there of people who don't like the right word march, the the stream of bills about, you know, no abortion exemptions and examining children's genitals to make sure that they're the right sex. Like people don't like that. And we're seeing responses to it. And even though this power, I think, seems so deeply rooted, there are ways to contradict it. and, And we're starting to see some of them. I think another thing just to before we 
before we uh, wrap up that that is helpful to understand kind of what Kay was just describing about how a gerrymander can deteriorate over over even even a decade through demographic change. One of the things to think about, you know, when you talk about gerrymandering, okay, how, what does that mean exactly? Basically, what it means is you get a lot of Republican seats that have 55% Republicans, 52% Republicans, something like that. And then a small number of Democratic seats are like 100% Democrats, right? So that that part is clear. You concentrate the Democrats, you create a bunch of, you know, maybe not safe, but, you know, winnable Republican seats and you're good to go. This is why uh, election election analysts talk about, the, they, they have these kind of floodlines, basically, right? It's all good as long as you're in a, like, let's say it's a bunch of 55 Republican, you know, 55% Republican seats and a few, you know, notion, the hypothetical here, uh, relatively few seats, 100% Democrats. That's all good until you get a wave, wavish election. And suddenly that 55 or 52% seat you lose it. And so the point is, if you get too aggressive with a gerrymander, you don't just lose some seats. If they're all based on like 53% Republicans, you can lose them all at once. And that's why the way gerrymanders work can be a bit like a, you know, one of the levees down in down in like New Orleans or something like that. You get a big enough flood and you don't have some like leakage here and there, the whole thing goes down. Um, and that's why, you know, that's kind of to the point of, uh, when Kate said this year with redistricting in Texas, come on, there's no more they can do because it, it becomes too fragile. So, you know, all of those things are, uh, we shouldn't imagine these things are going to change overnight, but there are some reasons to uh, think these things are not permanent. They are amenable to change. They're amenable to people organizing. They're amenable to people making the decision to a vote in every, you know, in every election, every two years, or even in some of these states, every election, every four months, right? When you're, when you're, when you're trying to space out these little elections. So we got this one where we're going to kind of pull a fast one. We're going to, we're going to schedule it, uh, you know, overnight in, in late August or something like that. And hopefully, you know, hope only the, only the, uh, the old, the old Republicans show up to vote. So there's some reason to, to hope for these and things. Not, totally. And not to sound all cheese ball earnest, but you know, Despair is a tool of people who kind of support these anti-democratic outcomes, you know, like the idea of hopelessness and checking out and not paying attention and just opting out. I mean, that's always something that the people who support minority interests are trying to push. So, you know, I don't know. The, the best way to kind of start out is to refuse to do those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that is our, our first go at one of our cool evergreen episodes. I kind of like it. I think there's some other issues we can, we, can, we can dig into because we always have these kind of meta issues that we are talking about peripherally when we talk about the news of the day, or we'll get into one, but there are other immediate news news topics we can get into. So we'll probably do more of these, um, even when even when they're not, because uh, one of us is 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 away for a while. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast and it's just been released the following week, i.e., two weeks from, <laughs> I'm going to make this way too complicated. All right, uh, our last. If you're listening to this podcast and it just came out in the last couple of days. Last week, 
we had a live podcast. This week, we have the Evergreen. Next week, we will be off. And the week after that, Kate and I will be back with a new, uh, you know, on the news uh, day of release episode of the podcast. And I think I think that's it. So we're going to we're going to wish you uh, wish you a great uh, vacation somewhere in uh, in Western Europe. Old Europe, as as uh, as Don Rumsfeld once said. Hopefully, next time we meet, uh, the uh, American and global economies have not exploded. Who knows? In my Who, knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Quite possible. Quite possible. All right, that's all we have for this episode. And uh, like I said, we'll be off next week. We'll be back the week after that. All right. Talk soon. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.